Father, thank you for the things that you do in our lives. And um, in all things, we can recognize that you're in control. So we thank you for that, God. We thank you for an opportunity just to worship, to come together and uh, in your name, to study you, God, to let things sink deep with you. I pray that it happened today, Lord, as we dig into your word. Pray that you would just open our hearts to what you'd have us hear. And even more than that, God, help us apply it in our lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Spent some time this last week counting, counting up some kind of strange things. And in this particular case, I was counting diagnoses that I have heard. Now, let me explain that. In the last five years, I found myself in emergency rooms, hospital rooms, and doctor's offices when I have heard the exact same diagnosis being given at least six times that I can count. Six times in five years, the exact same diagnosis. I was counting those up, just running through them in my mind and thinking in five years, six times, this is kind of unique. Now, the diagnosis is unique as well. And it has captured my attention from the first time I heard it all the way through all six times. That diagnosis is up here on the screen. Failure to thrive. I've heard the doctor in ERs, hospital rooms, and even in their offices say, I'm going to list this as failure to thrive. Now, I've never really explored that diagnosis, though I've been highly curious about it. So this last week, I contacted my doctor and my friend, Chad Rebo, and I asked him to tell me what that meant. In his initial response, he told me that there are three levels to a failure to thrive diagnosis. Here they are. There's physical frailty, disability, and impaired neuropsychiatric function. And he gave me a, a breakdown or a definition of each one of those specific areas within a failure to thrive diagnosis. And I'm not going to walk you through those right now, though we're going to give you a chance to understand that at a little deeper level here in just a minute. What I was really curious about, though, was how a failure to thrive physical diagnosis by a physician could compare to a failure to thrive spiritually diagnosis that we might find in the Bible. And so I threw that back to Chad, and, and I didn't hear back from him right away on it. So I did a little bit of exploring myself in Scripture, utilizing these three areas. And my question, at least what was running around in my mind, was where did Jesus meet people in each one of these situations? And I wanted to see if I could find it in the New Testament. And I did. Here's what I came up with. In the realm of physical frailty, John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, shows us how Jesus met somebody that was failing to thrive in that arena. In disability, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, shows us somebody that was failing to thrive, and they were met by Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we find this almost all-encompassing diagnosis of how Jesus meets people with impaired neuropsychiatric function, as well as a lot of other things. What I discovered is that Jesus is always looking for people that are failing to thrive. And he meets them right where they're at and leads them through it. 
Well, when I heard back from Chad, he had a depth of understanding of this idea of failing to thrive that I had not even begun to explore. And I want you to see that. But first, I want you to see what passage of Scripture he went to. This is really intriguing. Join me in the book of Ephesians. By the way, we're going to get to 2 Peter in just a little bit. We're in an ongoing study of First and 2 Peter, but we're just journeying our way there. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I love the fact that Chad went there. I love the fact that he chose that passage because it shows how all of us at one point are failing to thrive without Christ. Really interesting to me that Deanie would offer the communion meditation that he did just a few minutes ago. I had, had no idea what he was going to say this morning. But I love the fact that you reminded us all that in heaven, we're notorious sinners. We are notorious sinners. Every person. And when that title governs your life, you are failing to thrive. You are failing to thrive. Early Friday morning, I received an email from Chad with some further exploration that he had done on this idea of failing to thrive spiritually. It is really good. So I asked him to come and share it with you this morning. So I'm going to turn over the next portion of this message to Chad Rebo. Would you welcome him up here? Thanks, Phil. So a little background, um, as Phil mentioned, I received that text from him regarding uh, a definition of uh, failure to thrive, and basically I shot back to him what the National Institute of Aging has defined, and you know I would classify that as a physical, uh, spiritual, or excuse me, a physical failure to thrive, but it really became intriguing to me when he shot me back a message and asked, how does that relate to spiritual uh, failure to thrive? And so that's, that took me down this rabbit hole to, to look a little bit further, and I came up with a list of basically observations that I've noticed as I've interacted with people throughout the years, you know, in, in office, um, what I would consider to be a spiritual failure to thrive, and then kind of back that up with with scripture. Um, so to, to be clear, there's actually two kind of definitions of spiritual, or excuse me, failure to thrive. A lot of times when we think about it, we think about children um, and the lack of growth and nutrition. And, but when you start thinking about it in the, in the adult realm or in, in elderly, you start, a lot of times it's a diagnosis that's given to somebody that's at the end of their life. And so when Phil asked me this, basically I took what the National Institute on Aging had said and laid that down and basically just copied what's on their, um, what, what, they, what they define and using those three components, the frailty, the disability, and the neuropsych impairment. 
And then on the other side of that, I put what I would consider observations that I've made as far as what a spiritual failure to thrive. And then this is what I came up with. So I broke them down. So this first one, <clears throat> frailty, and I apologize. These are just kind of notes that I jotted down while I was in clinic trying to uh, get my thoughts down. So they're kind of messy, but I'll walk you through kind of what I was thinking here. So in a physical failure to thrive, this is what the National Institute on Aging says, <clears throat> somebody who is frail basically has weight loss, loss of appetite, and then there's a loss of neuromuscular function. Essentially what that means is they become weak. Um, and that could just be they're weak um, physically because of whatever um, excuse me, disease that they may have or whatever is going on, they've just become weak in their physical state. When I looked at this from a spiritual perspective, I, there, there is a spiritual frailty that I think somebody who is failing to thrive definitely meets. And this is what I've seen, again, observations. Um, a lot like, you know, somebody who's physically failing to thrive, they, they, they have weight loss. They, they have a loss of appetite. In the spiritual side of this, there's a loss of, of hunger for God's word. There's, there's no longer a hunger to seek what God says. And a lot of times, a lot of times when we eat, we know we get a fulfillment. There's a satisfaction after eating food. <clears throat> In a spiritual failure to thrive, there's really a loss of fulfillment. You don't get that fulfillment when you're not seeking God's words. And a lot of time, these folks just lose satisfaction with themselves, with their family, with the things that they used to find enjoyable. Um, and then when you talk to a lot of these folks, I realize that they don't really know what they believe anymore. They're constantly searching for worldly answers and not really seeking what God has to say. And so they're never completely satisfied. They might have short-term satisfaction with the answers that they're looking for or what they're finding in the world, but it never really brings complete gratification. Disability was a, another very interesting one. So in the, the uh, physical failure to thrive, there's what we do or what we look for is activities of daily living. And so this is something that we assess for. If you come to the clinic and when we're looking at you know, somebody disabled, we're looking to see if they're able to maintain these activities of daily living. And so an unfortunate acronym, DEATH, is basically the questions that we ask. Are these individuals able to dress themselves when they get up in the morning? Are they able to eat or be able to prepare their own meals? Are they able to ambulate on their own or at least with a, some sort of aid like a cane or a walker? Are they able to get to the bathroom themselves? And are they able to maintain a, a sense of hygiene? Can they brush their teeth? Can they get up and, and bathe? In a spiritual failure to thrive, what I've, one of the things that I've, I've noticed, especially, again, talking to folks who I would consider are failing to thrive spiritually, one of the biggest disabling factors to them is just the, the lack of truth. And my mind immediately went to Isaiah 28:15, when the Judeans were afraid of the uh, Assyrians, and, and basically they lost all trust in God, and then they started making a bargain to cheat death. And as a result of this, they basically made a refuge of lies and ultimately destruction. That same destruction is disabling. I think that really contributes to this, this spiritual disability. Um, the other thing, you know, when we talk about in the physical realm, the disability of those five components <clears throat> um, and not being able to meet the activities of daily living, one of the things that I've noticed in a spiritual failure to thrive is, 
is the fruits of the Spirit. You know, God tells us that you can't, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a good, uh, a bad fruit, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And we know that the Bible tells us that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, faithfulness. And a lot of times I see that folks who are really failing to thrive really lack in those, being able to produce those, those fruits. They a lot of times they're not happy, they're not gentle in their words or in their actions, and a lot of times they can't provide self-control, which then leads to kind of this trying to build a dependence on worldly possessions. And a lot of times that can be things like uh, money, greed, and addiction. A lot of times I see folks just turning to drugs, alcohol, um, and other things just to try to find that, that temporary fulfillment, which they never really are satisfied. So in my paraphrase here, with the physical failure to thrive, I basically said it's just an increased dependence on others to get through life. This is a lot of times when people are no longer able to be able to maintain these things and they've become disabled. They're usually dependent on somebody else, family, nursing homes, assisted livings, to get through their life. Um, And so the last one here, the neuropsych impairment, was really interesting um, for me, especially thinking about how that would imply to a, a spiritual uh, failure to thrive. In a physical failure to thrive, there's basically three components to it. There's depression, there's um, delirium, and then there's dementia. Depression is a huge factor. I mean, it's plaguing the United States and all over. Um, and one of the big, the, the big ways that this is classified is is it all boils down to a loss of hope or thoughts of hopelessness. When you talk to somebody that's depressed, a lot of times they tell you that there's just no hope. There's no hope in their ability to find a cure for whatever disease that they're facing, or there's just a loss of hope in, uh, in their situation. And a lot of times that's characterized by increased anhedonia, which is basically a loss of, of finding pleasure in things that they once found pleasure in. In the spiritual failure to thrive, I do think that there is a neuropsychiatric component or a a neuropsych spiritual component. And, you know, the Bible tells us that. In Romans 8, God tells us, or Paul tells us that, um, that, you know, uh, actually I'll read it to you. I think it's better characterized through the Bible. So in Romans chapter 8, and really I think, you know, the psych is, the psyche, psychiatry is basically a state of mind. And, and here's what Roman has to say, or Paul has to say in Romans. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. I think that's a lot of what the neuropsych spiritually looks like. When you set your mind on sinful things, you can't be in tune with the what God has in sight for you. <clears throat> and so, um, when you are no longer in tune with God, you basically lose sight um, in, in what's truth. And then you lose that hope. I, I would say that the, a spiritual depression develops. And that's, again, a loss of hope. A loss of hope in Jesus, of who he is and what he has and the promise that he has for you. And then you also develop what I would consider this spiritual anhedonia. Basically, you lose, you lose joy in the things that you once found 
enjoyable, especially with communion with fellow Christians or communion time with God. You just lose that, and it's no longer enjoyable. And so, again, this is my paraphrase for what a physical failure thrive, failure to thrive looks like, and that's essentially an altered level of consciousness or reality with an inability to tolerate or cope with life. That's what I would basically summarize the, the, a physical failure to thrive to look at. In a spiritual uh, failure to thrive, it's a little bit longer, but basically it's a spiritual depression or a loss of hope, which ultimately I believe is sin, which we know separates us from God. A lot of times these individuals fall prey to Satan's lies, and as a result of that, they don't know what to believe in, and they become obstructed in God's love. Um, And they a lot of times feel that salvation no longer applies to them. And so as this this progresses, a lot of times these people become so delirious in worldly explanations and pleasures that really they have developed a demented view and are constantly searching for a temporary satisfaction instead of a, a temporary worldly satisfaction instead of, you know, God's, eternal uh, reward. An interesting concept with delirium and dementia, delirium is basically a disturbed state of mind. So that could be um, uh, something like hallucinations, confusion, and sometimes this can be due to a disease state. Um, For example, if somebody is extremely septic, they, they may not be able to think clearly. They may have that altered mentation. Sometimes it can be iatrogenic, meaning it's something that we as healthcare providers do to them. Medications can sometimes cause hallucinations and, and alter people's views. Dementia, on the other hand, is a condition. It's a, it's a physical condition where basically there's a loss of, of intellectual uh, capacity. People can't, can no longer, there's an impairment in, in memory. And so basically as I went through um, what Phil had talked about with the spiritual failure to thrive. These are just observations that I've made over the years of, of, inter, of, of just interacting with individuals and, and things that I would consider to, to um, contribute to that spiritual failure to thrive. And as Phil had mentioned, um, you know, if I had to summarize it, again, Ephesians chapter 2 really, really does hit home for me. And I really like you know, the, the, the heading of chapter 2 basically says, made alive with Christ. And so in my, in my experience is if we are made alive in Christ and we are with Christ, how can we not only be alive, but how can we not only thrive as well? So, Phil, thank you for the intriguing question. I greatly wow. appreciated that. <laughs> thank you, Chad. <clears throat> we were talking throughout the course of the week and Chad was sharing his perspective with me out of Ephesians 2. I asked him, so what's the answer? And and he'd already given that to me as well as to you. The answer is Jesus. But in chapter 2, verse 13, this is what Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Made alive in Christ. Made alive in Christ. Chad went on to tell me that that recently he's dealing with two different patients with a failure to thrive diagnosis, and they are distinctly different, one from the other, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And what a cool thing. The antidote 
to failure to thrive spiritually is always Jesus. It is always Jesus. Now I am so happy that Chad went down the road that he did in his exploration of that because it's completely different than the path that I was on. Now remember, we're going to get to 2 Peter, but while I was thinking about this idea of spiritually failing to thrive, I found myself in the book of Hebrews. Why don't you join me there? This is Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now that's the path I was on, and I I fired that back to Chad, and I said, hey, what do you think about this? (laughs) And this is what he actually said. He said, I'm not sure how that connects to failure to thrive. (laughs) You want to talk about crashing your plane? And so I'm like, no, I, I think it does. But what I discovered in our conversation is that we were looking at this in two totally different ways. And what I didn't realize is that I was looking at it in that first category that Chad talked about. Usually the term failure to thrive is applied to infants or toddlers. And recently it has been applied in different avenues. So I was looking at it from that first application, while Chad was looking at it in the second. So here's what I mean by that. When a diagnosis is given to toddlers that are failing to thrive or infants, Here's the way that it is usually measured. I took five different sources off the internet. That's where these came from. There's about 90 seconds of research in this. Here you go. According to the Nationwide Children's Hospital, failure to thrive in infants is is described as an infant or child who does not gain weight at the expected rate. There's number one. Number two, this is according to the American Academy of Physical Physicians. An abnormal pattern of weight gain defined by the lack of sufficient usable nutrition. Number three, this is from Stanford Medicine. It is slow physical development in a baby or a child. Number four, when growing kids don't gain weight as they should. That's from Kids Health, pretty simplified. And number five, from John Hopkins Medicine. Infants or children who fail to thrive have a height, weight, and head circumference that do not match standard growth charts. So that is failure to thrive as applied to infants or toddlers. And it appears to me that the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, was applying it spiritually to spiritual infants and toddlers that are not growing at the right rate. They are not maturing the way they should be. There isn't a weight gain. Their head circumference knowledge is not growing at the rate that it should. And it may very well be because of the nutrition that they're taking in. So did you catch that the writer of Hebrews said, you need milk, not solid food. We got to go back. We got to change your diet and go back so that you're receiving the right nutrition in order to grow spiritually. So I was coming at it from the standpoint of people that are already in Christ and failing to thrive. 
as Chad was coming at it from those that are not yet in Christ and are failing to thrive. But as we talked about it, when you put the two together, you find a depth of understanding in this. Writer of Hebrews sure did. Picking up in verse 6, he says, Therefore, remember he's saying, we got to change your nutrition in order for you to grow. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Skipping ahead to verse 9, the writer says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Some translations say things that accompany salvation. In essence, the writer of Hebrews, and this would be Phil's paraphrase, is saying that if you want to thrive in Christ, you've got to grow up. You have to grow up. You have to invest in the right nutrition. You have to make sure that your weight gain is matching your time in Christ. You've got to grow up. And you need to make sure that you are doing that because anything other than that is failing to thrive. It is failing to thrive. Now that whole thing began with what I refer to as the genesis of this exploration right out of Peter's second letter. If you want to join me there, I'll show it to you. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. This is where it all started. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Reading those two verses... Here's what I I take from that. God has given us everything we need to thrive in Him. God has given us everything we need to thrive in Him. Now let me say that again, because I'm not sure you're with me. God has given us everything we need to thrive in Him. That's how this all started. Because that left me wondering, then why is it that people fail to thrive? And so Chad's understanding of that and his approach to it was some people fail to thrive because they never get into Christ in the first place and they need Jesus to change the course of that. I love that. I love that. But there are people in Christ that are failing to thrive because they don't grow up. They just don't grow up. They stay where they're at. Well, for some of us, we could easily say, then if God has given us everything that we need to thrive, then shouldn't we just naturally grow up? The answer is yes and no. Yes, you should. But no, it doesn't just happen automatically. You have to invest in it. You have to make some choices. You have to determine to do the right things in order to grow up. It doesn't just naturally happen. And Peter shows us exactly how we can make sure that it takes place. In essence, what he is about to do is give us an antidote to failure to thrive. I refuse to call it a prescription 
Because if we see it as a prescription, we will be in trouble. It is an antidote, and it really appears to be based in spiritual vitamins. Now, track through that with me. This is not a man-made antidote. This is a God-made, vitamin-based antidote. Now, I'll show you what I'm talking about if you'll join me in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Did you see the vitamins? Did they jump off the page at you? Let's look again. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Eight of them. There's eight of them. Now I want you to think about it like this. If you were taking vitamins in the morning, I take vitamins in the morning. Drives my wife crazy that I just take the whole thing, pour all of them in my hand. There, how many are there? There are seven. And then I just throw them in my mouth, wash them down with orange juice. She hates that because she's one of those people that has to take them one at a time. And some of them have to be cut up. And then if she can choose the chewables, she will choose the chewable because swallowing them is really hard for her. But for me, a handful of them, blah, boom done well there's eight of them that he just gave us vitamins for our faith that can help us thrive in christ yet we have to lean into them we have to lean into them we have to choose them we have to be dedicated to taking them if you will if we don't we can find ourselves in a position where we are failing to thrive now here's what I like. In this entire passage that we just read, from verse 3 through verse 14, we get to see some remarkable things from God. If you were to break this passage down and outline it for what you see from God, here's what you might find. This is how I would break it down. Verses 3 through 4, doesn't that sound like thriving? Verses 5 through 7, doesn't that sound like a prescription or an antidote? Verses 8 through 10, doesn't that sound like a guarantee? And verse 11, doesn't that sound like a promise? That's 11 through 14. It really does. So now we find out that when we choose to thrive, God will be right there with us. He will walk through it with us every step of the way. 
So when we're failing to thrive and we choose to change the course of that by doing what God tells us to do, God says, I'm all in with you. And I will be all the way to the end until you stand right there with me and then you have no idea what that's going to look like. You will thrive. I don't want us to spend a ton of time with each one of these things in verses 5 through 7. You don't need me to explain those to you. But maybe, just maybe, if we look at it from a different translation, it'll be a little easier for you to swallow, if you will. Here you go. This is from the easy-to-read version. Because you have these blessings, do all you can to add to your life these things. To your faith, add goodness. To your goodness, add knowledge. To your knowledge, add self-control. To your self-control, add patience. To your patience, add devotion to God. To your devotion, add kindness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. And to this, kindness, add love. That word add in the original language means in increasing measure. Always growing. Always growing. You've never arrived. So you continue to take those vitamins, one at a time, handful at a time, whatever you have to do, in increasing measure, so that you will always thrive in Christ and not find yourself in jeopardy of what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. Failure to thrive spiritually where you should be looking at things through a mature lens but you have to be treated like an infant to get you to grow again. Thrive in Christ. Thrive in Christ. Make the right decisions. Take the right steps. I want to take all of that in set it aside for just a second and I'm going to show you a Bible study technique that is is really quite remarkable but you should never do it alone it is something that you need to do in a group now here's what I mean by that when you do it in a group you get different perspectives you can do it alone but you get different perspectives I call it the significant but significant passage Bible study technique where you take a run of scripture like we just read in Second Peter and you simply ask, what is the most significant passage to you? One verse out of that entire run, what is the most significant verse to you? Tried this with the guys that I pray with on Sunday mornings, about 8.05, 8.10, we started looking at that and breaking it down. And it was interesting, I think there were eight of us in there this morning, there were eight different perspectives. And that's okay. When you look at significant passage Bible study, something is going to speak to you that doesn't necessarily speak to the person next to you. But when you start looking at it as a whole, you get a crazy amount of perspective. Well, I want to show you the verse that I see as the most significant from this whole run. Here it is. If you're in Second Peter chapter 1, then this is just from Phil's perspective, but there's a lot of meaning in it. Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Here's why that's so significant. Peter is somewhere between 65 and 70 years old when he writes this letter. Most scholars believe that he is locked up in a Roman prison very soon to die. And he knows it. So in verse 14 he says, I'm not getting out of this. God's not going to intervene like he has in the past. At least two different times that we're aware of, God got him out of jail. 
miraculously got him out of jail. Remember that from our study of this? This time, Peter's saying, it's not going to happen this time. And God has confirmed that in me. It is entirely possible that the Apostle Paul has already been executed, martyred for his faith. And Peter is just waiting for his time. And he writes these words. This is what he chose to make his last words. These are well thought out. For him to put this type of teaching in place at the end of his life is really, truly remarkable. And he says, I wanted to say this in such a way that you will never forget it so that you will always thrive. God has given you everything you need. He has given you everything you need. Now do your part. Do your part. In the book of 1 Peter, he talks about the trials and the persecutions that the church will face. Very real, very tangible ones. In the book of 2 Peter, he is addressing the wolves and the coyotes that have made their way into the church. Heretics, false teachers. And he's saying, don't you let them take you back. Because if they take you back, you will fail to thrive in Christ. Don't do that. You stay away from them. These are my last words to you, the people that I love, he's saying. You make sure you guard yourselves so that you thrive. The significance of these words are found in that one verse. 65, 70 years old, locked up in a prison cell, knowing that he will never walk free again until he is in the presence of the Lord. Peter chooses to preach and to teach. The very thing that he is locked up for, he chooses to do while he is in a Roman jail. Isn't that cool? How this letter got out is miraculous in and of itself. That was the hand of God that got this out so that we have it. But Peter preached all the way to the end. And he taught God's people to thrive in Christ all the way to the end. It's as if he is answering a great question that people have wrestled with, maybe summed up best by a, an American author that died in the 1800s. Take a look at this. This is from William Soroyan. He died in May of 19, or not the 1800s, in the 20th century, 1981. He said, everybody has got to die, but I've always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? Now what? Peter could have easily said the same thing. Everybody's got to die, but I've been locked in prison a couple times, threatened with death, and there's always been an exception made in my case. Not this time. Now what? And he chose to write like this so that we would always remember it. We would always have it. And those vitamins that we need so desperately can always be in our hand. And we can take them and we can grow in Christ and we can thrive in Him. Two different applications of this. For those of you that are not yet in a relationship with Jesus, He's the answer to thriving. Chad laid that out for you. Some of those things that you have wrestled with and tried to understand in your life and tried to sort out so that you could get away from it, but you seem to be getting pulled back in all the time to the point where you feel like you're failing to thrive. Jesus can change that. Get into a relationship with Him. And for those of you that have been in one for a long time, but you feel like you're failing to thrive, it may very well be because you're not growing up. Grow up. 
Grow up. Take your faith and then begin to add things to it. Take those vitamins and watch what happens. And thrive in Christ. Whichever one you need, a beginning relationship or a renewed relationship, you can thrive in Christ because God has given us everything we need to accomplish that. He gave it to us in His Son. We sang about that a lot this morning. He has given us His Son. Thrive in Him. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, I don't know how you miraculously protected this letter. Someday I look forward to getting the details of that story. I don't know if Peter will tell it or if a guard that he led to know you will tell it. I don't know if you'll just tell it yourself, but I look forward to hearing it. But right now, today, I'm grateful that we have these words. I'm grateful that Peter wrote what you gave him. I'm glad that he put such a passion behind it. Maybe that came because he he wasn't going to get to say anything else afterwards. Thank you for these last words, Lord, and what they mean to us. I'm praying now for people in a couple of different arenas of life. Those that have yet to enter a relationship with you, I pray that changes today. And those that are walking with you yet still feeling like it is a struggle to thrive. I pray, Lord, that that will change today. As they look at what they need to do, which vitamin they need to add, I pray they'll find it. In Jesus' name, amen.